So we are going to be back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, last week, I specifically um, skipped two verses. I didn't really skip them. I just didn't address them because they really need their own separate consideration. So we went down through verse uh, 5 or 6 last time. Let me get back into... I've got 1 Corinthians up here, but I need to get back into it in my little, my little scripture here. Um, we went all the way down to verse 8, actually. But I didn't address verses 2 and 3. And this is a typical preacher and typical Apostle Paul. It, it, something grabs his attention in the spirit and he mentions it as part of what he's talking about. And then he goes on with the original thought. So there's a lot of ellipses in Paul and that ellipsis is not something that is unimportant. It's not like a parenthetical that you're like, oh, I can just toss that aside. It ends up being in many ways more important than the practical uh, teaching that he addressed here, right? So um, we're going to pray and then we're going to go back into this and uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 and that will kind of get us back into the flow of what uh, the apostle is dealing with here. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to teach your word. I want to pray that uh, you will continue to protect your people, that uh, we will be safe, that we will be wise, that we will take care of our health, um, that we won't allow the situation in the world, whether it's the pandemic or politics or uh, just uh, anything that might uh, be coming our way that would potentially get us down. We won't allow that to, to drag us down, but that we will continue to be positive because we're faith-oriented people, and we know that if we trust you, that all things are going to work out for our good and for your glory. That's what you've promised. So we just need to trust you and seek to follow Jesus and love on you and allow you to work out your will and I pray that we're going to be open to what you want to say this evening. Uh, perhaps those that are here in the room, what, what will be said will not be controversial, but uh, there could be those that watch this later uh, online that it could be. So I just pray that everybody will be willing to hear your word with an open heart and an open mind. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So if, you're, if you've got your own copy of Scripture, we're also going to have it up here uh, on the screen. Um, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and re read verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to read this out of the English Standard Version. You're going to see when I get to verses, uh, verses 9 through 11 in the teaching part that I'm going to switch translations uh, back to the New American Standard Bible. But here it is. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? And by the way, those are the verses we're going to look at in just a moment. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, um, Lord willing, we're gonna look at verses two and three right now, and then verses nine through 11 for the balance of our study. So, this is this little ellipsis or paraphrastic that he puts in there. Um, it almost could be taken out of the main argument, but he's trying to help them to understand. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Well, who are the saints? That's, that's Christians, right? We don't ever call ourselves saints, but Paul does all the time. In fact, that's his favorite term uh, for believers when he addresses them at the beginning of a letter. He says, saints. When we think of saints, um, we're probably thinking of those very, very special people that the Catholic Church has set aside over the years and uh, they have certain requirements. Uh, they have to have performed two miracles, I think, and so on and so forth. But the reality is in scripture, saint just means the holy ones and a holy one is not someone that sets themselves aside by virtue of their behavior and their holiness. A holy one is someone who belongs to God, who is really the only holy one, right? God is the transcendent one. He's the utterly otherly. So everything that belongs to God is in fact holy. What he says is mine, that's holy. So when you come to Jesus and you open your heart and you say Jesus is Lord, he takes you as his own. You become part of his family and you become a holy one, right? So when we start thinking of ourselves that way, it's much easier, I think, to realize that there's just so many things that the world offers that really shouldn't be part of our lives. It's, if I belong to Jesus, why would I be participating in some of the things that the, the world wants me to participate in, right? Um, and he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Well, okay, so here's this other thing. Um, previously, we, we looked at this idea of judgment inside the church and outside the church. Um, and I talk to you about judgment as fault finding, right? And that's really what Jesus is saying in uh, Matthew 7, 1 and 2, when he says, judge not or you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And by the way, we really see that a whole lot uh, in the way people deal with one another, right? Um, I talk to people all the time and they'll say, well, so-and-so said this to me. So I said that back to them. So basically what happens is we're judging the same way we've been judged, right? So it's the eye for eye, tooth for tooth mentality. And so that's, that's pure justice, right? So if they broke your arm, you break their arm and so on and so forth. But we're called to something higher. We're called to mercy. So Jesus said, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. That's not justice, that's mercy, right? That's humility. Um, if someone demands your coat, then you give them your tunic. That's not justice, right? But it's right because Jesus came to establish a different basis for morality and that basis is love. That doesn't mean that justice won't be done, 
because in the end, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But somehow, in the way God is gonna work this out, he says the saints will judge the world. I don't think that that means that the saints are gonna be censorious. There's my word that I tried to teach you guys a couple weeks ago, right? Uh, censorious, to censor someone. So we automatically look negatively toward people that have wronged us in the past or whom we do not like, right? We get a censorious attitude, a judgmental attitude. And again, we see that all over the place. But this is talking about God's righteous judgment that we, in some way, will participate in. Okay, now this may be saints will judge the world in that our relationship with God and the resulting conduct will be shown to the rest of the world as the standard by which they could have followed and they could have behaved, if that makes sense, right? So this is what I want Lifewell to be. We're not called Lifewell because that's just a nice innocuous name. Um, it's because I want us to really genuinely live our lives well. We wanna live our lives as reflections of Jesus so that people see that there's something different in us in a good way, right? They see that, that we're behaving differently in the midst of all of this horrible negativity and so forth. Well, in a sense, that's showing them the way they should live without pointing a finger at them and saying, you better or else. So I don't know if that's fully what the Lord is speaking here. I just know that we're given this very, very brief reference that should help us to understand that heaven is not gonna be sitting on clouds and playing harps, right? Um, God's kingdom to some people is little more than that and little cherubs uh, like these little babies with tiny wings flitting around and, you know, I mean, how horrible is that? I'm sorry, you know, maybe that sounds wonderful to you, but a lot of the imagery that we have for heaven and hell comes from, you know, a period of art uh, in the late Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, right? So this, this idea of these cherubs as these little naked babies that are, have little tiny wings that are flitting around. Uh, a cherub in scripture is not a little baby with tiny wings. It's a terrifying angel. It's a powerful angelic being, right? And then, you know, we have a mis, uh, misunderstanding about hell that comes from that same time period. You know, that's devils with pitchforks chasing people around in the flames. The devil is more afraid of hell than you are. He knows what's coming. It's not his kingdom. It's his downfall, right? And anybody that chooses not to follow Jesus, it's their downfall as well. But somehow we're gonna be involved in that. So uh, believers in Jesus are adopted into God's family. That's why we're holy, we're part of that. And we're given an inheritance. And that, that includes responsibility. I got news for you, we are gonna rest. You enter into the presence of Jesus when you, when you pass from this life, right? So there, there's a good reason to say rest in peace. If, if they know Jesus, they will rest in peace. But I got news for you. We got things to do in eternity. You're not just gonna be sitting around. We're not just gonna be, you know, playing around for eternity. Um, we're not just gonna be attending worship services for eternity. We have things to do. So here we have this, you know, this view of this. But listen to what we're called in 1 Peter 2, 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
So faithful believers in Christ, we're told in Revelation, will come to life and reign with him for a thousand years. This is Revelation 2, um, 26 and 27, where a promise that is made about the Messiah in Psalm chapter 2 is applied by Jesus to his people. And the promise about Messiah is that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's about Jesus. But listen to how Jesus applies this here to the church of Thyatira in Revelation 2. The one who conquers who keeps, and who keeps my works until the end. That the one who conquers is the one who overcomes, right? That's somebody that stays saved, in other words, right? Um, we, we continue to endure to the end. That's what the scripture says, right? I believe in once saved, always saved, but I also believe that those who endure to the end are the ones that will be saved. If you don't endure to the end, then I think there's good reason to believe that you weren't saved to begin with, right? The one who overcomes, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. That's Psalm 2. That's a messianic psalm. But here's the Messiah saying, you will rule the nations. We got things to do. You need to look at heaven as being a whole lot more than earth, right? You're being prepared for something. We're being made to be more like Jesus for a purpose. And believe it or not, on Sunday, I'm trying to help us understand that as well. This, you know, we have a difficult time understanding why this good and powerful God, you know, has permitted so much evil in the world. But I'm going to help you understand that there's a purpose for all of that. There's a greater purpose in his will. And uh, there are many angles to that, and I don't want to get into it now, but I hope you'll keep coming on Sunday morning and paying attention. And those of you that are online, I hope you'll keep paying attention because it's all uh, in this book that I'm writing that may never get published, but I'm writing it anyway. Um, so we're on earth to prepare for the eternal responsibility of heaven. We're here to learn wisdom and to become more like Christ. So, you know, ask yourself the question, am I following Jesus and learning to be a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God? We're not down here to waste time, folks. We're not. Um, we're here, we're not here to build our own temporary kingdoms. That's like building a sandcastle when the tide's coming in, right? And, you know, I try to get people to understand that, but it seems seemingly people don't build sandcastles anymore. Um, and uh, I haven't been to the beach a lot, but I did, you know, build a few. You get a little cup and, you know, you squish it down into the sand so you can make all the little battlements, you know, and you stack them all on top of each other and you've got this great looking thing. And then just, it just takes a little wave to come in and it just wipes it out. Hey, that's your kingdom. Um, so let's learn how to live well now and how to live in complete submission to Christ, how to be wise and responsible with all of our resources. God has given us time, talent, money, health, influence, and none of that's really ours, right? That's, it's a, all of those things are gifts. Uh, they're all on loan, and the owner expects to get a return on what he's loaned. So consider Jesus' parable of the minas. Now, typically, I would use the parable of the talents. That's the more familiar parable uh, that's referenced, where the master gives one servant five talents, and that, that's a weight of, of gold or silver, right? He gives one 
uh, one servant, five talents, one two, and one one. And in the parable of the talents, each of the first two double the amount, and they bring that back when the master calls them to account. And he says, you know, uh, you know, blessed are you, and you know, enter into the joy of your master. But that's that's really all we're told there. But in Luke 19, and I'm going there right now, if you wanna go to that parable, it starts in verse 11. We have a different version of the same parable, and this time a different weight of money is used. It's called the minna. So this is just, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, shekels versus pound, British pounds or something. You see what I'm saying? All of this harkens back to a time when money was precious metal and you weighed it, that's how you discovered how much it was worth. But even in Jesus' day, you have coins that are worth a certain uh, amount because the empire designated them as that, like a denarius. That was just a coin that was worth a day's work, basically. So if you worked for an entire day, then you'd get a denarius. Um, Okay, so let's take a look at this parable, and I think you're gonna see how it ties into uh, these verses about the saints judging the world, the saints judging angels, and so forth. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was, was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, that is, Jesus said, a nobleman went to, into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Well, this nobleman is obviously Christ. Calling, uh, calling ten, 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minutes and said to them, now, that's a little hard to understand at first. It doesn't mean he gave them 10 minutes apiece. He called 10 servants and he gave each one one minna. All right, a minna was worth about three months wages. Okay? And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Well, this is, you know, the people of Christ, right? This is the Jewish people who rejected Jesus. Um, When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minna has made 10 minas more. Verse 17. And he said to him, well done, good servant. That's what we have in the parable of the talents. But this goes further. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Now that's what I neglected to say. Uh, the parable of the talents is more broad. Because you've been faithful in little, you will be faithful over much, right? You will be given much. But now we have this explicit, you will be, uh, you shall have authority over 10 cities in the kingdom. And the second came saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. Hey, You wanna hear, judge not and you will not be judged? You wanna hear, the measure you use is the measure that's given back, right? This is what this man thought of the master. So the master said, okay, here it is. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I didn't deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Well, why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? 
And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I want you to notice, these men went out and they used their master's money, right? And they produced. And they came back and they said, here it is. He didn't take it from them. They still had it. He says, he already has 10 minutes. He says, no, give it to him. And then on top of that, he says, now he's going to be over 10 cities. He knows he's trustworthy. Now, whose kingdom is it? It's not their kingdom, right? They're princes in the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to the master. The master is Jesus. The princesses and princes in the kingdom, that's you. That's you. And you have been given a minna. What are you doing with it? That's your life. What are you doing with it? So you got the people that are like, you know, I just don't, don't appreciate my life. And, you know, why wasn't my life like that person? You're just hard on us, Lord. And da, da, da. okay, I'll judge you with your own words. There it is. Um, so we need to think that, well, the end of the, of the uh, I'll read the end of the parable as well. Um, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this is where I've mentioned this before in Mark, where Jesus says this, it seems very clearly <clears throat> to, re <clears throat> to relate to revelation coming from the Lord, right? So you might've been taught in Sunday school when you're, you're a kid. Uh, maybe you were in youth group when you were younger and you had a, a pretty genuine relationship with Jesus and you learned a lot from your pastor or your Sunday school teacher, your youth minister and whatnot. But then you got older and you just say, ah, you know, that's for kids. You just put it, right? And pretty soon you're behaving more and more like the world and less and less like a Christian. And soon enough, you're forgetting more and more and more of what you were taught. Personally, I know that there are factors that are um, biological, but I think that this speaks to uh, issues like Alzheimer's as well. One of the things that can help push that away is to exercise your mind and exercise your body. There's deterioration that happens and people that have a, a you know, uh, genetic tendency toward this, um, it's going to escalate. But I mean, even if somebody just sits and does Sudoku puzzles, I mean, keep your mind active, read, write, exercise, right? You use it. Have you heard this phrase? If you don't use it, you lose it. Your muscles deteriorate when you don't use them, okay? Everything deteriorates when you don't use it. Well, that's, it's a principle in the kingdom as well. You have been given certain things. You've been given health. You've been given maybe not a lot of money. Nobody in this room has, right? But, you know, we're given certain things. Um, we're given time. And different times in our lives, we have more or less of these things to offer. But we're given these things. We are expected to produce, to glorify God with those things to do something with our lives, right? Verse 27, but as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's the people that are rejecting Jesus as Messiah. Doesn't matter if they're Jew or Gentile, right? And they will be destroyed. So that's, uh, maybe that's a, a little difficult to grab a hold of, but hopefully, it helps you to understand that we're gonna be called to account at the end of our lives. It is appointed for everyone once to die and then comes judgment. That was my house of judgment verse for years and years. Um, 
And uh, then, and that's uh, Hebrews 9.27. And then 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an answer for our lives uh, for what we have done, whether good or bad. A time of reckoning is coming. Don't think that anybody's getting away from this stuff. So there was apparently, there was some sort of an outdoor event in Portland, Oregon, I think it was Portland, uh, over the weekend. And um, I have yet to figure out whether this is the same event that uh, this uh, worship leader that I've told you about, Sean Fucht or Feucht, you have to be careful saying his name and I don't know how to pronounce it, but he was the one that was going all over the country. He's still doing it, doing this let us worship, right, during the pandemic. Uh, So basically they were allowing protests last summer, so he just framed this as a protest. So you're gonna let these people protest, let us worship. Stop shutting our churches down. And so they were just getting out there in the open air, not in buildings, out in the open air and just, you know, worshiping the Lord. And they were running into problems. There were cities trying to shut them down and all these sorts of things. So they're still doing this. They did, and again, it, the, the Fox News report was unclear because it didn't use his name. It used these other names. But I did see some video from Sean Fucht, however you say his name that would indicate that the same bad actors that I'm about to tell you about were involved in their situation as well. But what happened? There's a Christian worship service going on outdoors with the types of people you would assume would show up at such a service, right? Uh, Families, kids, Antifa shows up and starts throwing stuff into the crowd, throwing eggs into the crowd, throwing smoke bombs into the crowd, at least one person said they threw a flashbang in there. I don't know how they got a hold of one of those. With kids. With kids. A pastor came out and said, guys, please stop. They pepper sprayed him in the face. The Portland police did nothing. Nothing. You're not protected anymore if you're in certain cities. Right? Because these people rule the streets. They took the sound gear from that Christian organization and threw it in the river. They tore everything up. They chased these people away. This is Antifa. God Almighty will judge those people. Guaranteed. You better get saved because you don't come up against God's people like that and think you're going to get away with it. That's evil. That is absolutely downright evil. But you know what we do? We pray. We deal with it. We stand up for justice and righteousness but we don't strike back. Now, I don't think that that means that, you know, you couldn't have a a protective detail out there that's trying to keep these people away from your people. I teach karate, for goodness sake, right? I teach self-defense. But self-defense is not eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hit for hit. It is an effort to keep people like this from harming you or your family. But in the end, what is gonna win people is kindness. Now. I've had enough experience, and I'm sure you've had enough experience as well, to realize that there are people that take advantage of mercy. There are people that take advantage of grace. And that can only happen for so long. And then you are wise to stop allowing them to take advantage of your good grace. Doesn't mean you have to be mean to them. It just means all you're doing is enabling their bad behavior. You've got to withdraw, right? That's, you know, what we've been talking about, church discipline and these sorts of things, right? Okay, so, yeah, the day of judgment's coming. And when I see stuff like that, it infuriates me, frankly. 
right? I, I want to get a karate class full of young men that I have well trained to, and have them standing out there and say, yeah, bring it, Antifa, bring it. Because I got some guys that can throw a leg right up the side of your head and drop you right there in front of the river. But that's not Jesus, so, okay. Anyway, that's just how I feel. It's wrong. It's wrong. And I, I'm just wondering, in any other situation, would that be allowed? So last summer, there were a lot of people with a lot of anger because of the, the George Floyd killing. What, happened, what would happen if you had some uh, organization that came out and started throwing stuff at those protesters, right? And tearing, you know, taking their, uh, their megaphones uh, away and, and fighting them and hurting them. I am guaranteeing you the cops would have been all over that. The news would have been all over that. Yeah, we're getting back to that time when Christians are no longer favored, especially if you're in certain parts of the country, right? So, in the end, the Apostle Paul is trying to help us to understand that we are a different sort of people. Not just individuals, we are a different people. We're to be standing for something different. And so, it's his kingdom, not my kingdom. Here it is. This is difficult. I read the text from the English Standard Version a moment ago, um, and Lige, that is the text that is there verse by verse, except for one verse that is different from ESV that will be the same as NASB. So Lige is going to go ahead and put these verses up there verse by verse, but they're going to be just a little bit different because I'm going to read New American Standard Bible. It's a very literal translation, just like ESV, so a lot of times they're very similar. Or do you not know that the, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Past tense but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So as I said, I quoted from the American Standard there uh, because it is the most literal translation, which is necessary for the purpose of getting back to what Paul said in the original text, apart from current politically correct interpretations of language and intent. And we're gonna get to that shortly. If you were paying attention, you know what verse we're talking about. So. We're saved by Christ's grace through faith. That's how you establish right standing with God. You don't get right standing with God by keeping commandments, going to church, reading the Bible, doing all these good things. That's not how you establish a relationship with God. But once you have that relationship established, you are reborn, right? The, the Spirit of God enters into your heart and gives you a new nature. And that new nature, that holy nature, produces righteous deeds and right attitudes and right words. So the Apostle Paul is just plain, and this is just as plain as day. Don't be deceived. The unrighteous are not going to heaven, period. Now, we're judged in accordance with our relationship with Christ, but our relationship with Christ is going to show. So, once again, I've said it many times in this church, what does the word Christian mean? 
You know what it means? Christ-like, little Christ, okay? That's why those early believers were called Christians because they were just obsessed with Jesus and with following Jesus. And so they said, they're, they're Christians, they're little Christs. That's what they're doing. So what I say is, Christian means little Christ. So if there is little in you that is like Christ, then you're not a Christian because it's gonna show through. And the more you progress, the more you're sanctified, the more you become like Jesus in your behavior and in your attitude, right? Um, so the kingdom of God, you know, that's heaven. That's the inheritance of all those who believe in Jesus. And this is what uh, Jesus spoke often of. In fact, what was Jesus' very first sermon? It's very short. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a short sermon. I bet you guys wish that I would preach sermons that short. Right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's what we're looking at, is the kingdom of heaven being established and ultimately uh, being established on earth. In fact, what did Jesus teach us to pray? Right? Thy will be done, thy kingdom come, right? on earth as it is in heaven. So we're taught to pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, well, not everyone's gonna be a part of God's kingdom. So there's a lot of universalism in the world today, and that is the belief that everybody's going to heaven. And I've said this many times before as well, if everybody's going to heaven, then heaven is not gonna be any different than earth, and earth is quite a mess, wouldn't you say? So heaven doesn't seem, that it would, does not seem that heaven would be very heavenly. And there's somehow a belief that, well, you know, somehow God will just make everybody behave. Well, then you don't have a will any longer, but you're not gonna lose your free will in heaven. I got news for you. You and I are learning not to sin down here because you're still gonna have free will in heaven. I want you to remember something. Satan was in a perfect relationship with God as Lucifer. He was a perfect being. He had never sinned, and he was able to use his free will to elevate his will above God's will. I believe the way you're gonna stay God's people and maintain your free will is because of everything you're going through down here on earth. I think that's the plan. I think there's, there is constant exposure to what a world without God is like. Who would want that? If I'm in the presence of God, it so far outshines anything that I had down here that I would never wanna leave. That coupled with the reality that, you know, uh, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever is a constant reminder that everybody that rejected Jesus went to hell and was destroyed, right? So I think everything we're going through here is, it's the plan. It's not plan B, this is plan A. God knew that this was gonna happen all along. You are being prepared. But the question is, are you submitting? Are you surrendering? Or are you just kind of going along with the rest of the world. Um, so let's look at these things, and I should be able to get through them. Uh, Paul is naming the common lifestyle practices among Corinthians when he uses these. He's not random about this. These were the things that he saw that were 
common sinful lifestyle practices among Corinthians. And I've mentioned to you before that, I mean, behavior in Corinth was so bad that uh, there was actually a verb that was coined to Corinthianize that meant you were acting like a Corinthian, right? Which meant you were just debauched and immoral. So I don't know if there's anything like that today, if there's any place in the world that we would uh, kind of automatically associate as being sinful because so many people from that place were are that way. Um, but nonetheless, so the first, uh, the first thing that he says is the first uh, sin that he mentions, I think it's, it says fornicators and New American Standard, it's the sexually immoral, and that is uh, the word pornos in Greek, and it's one who engages in sexual immorality, whether it's a man or a woman, and in some contexts, it's distinguished from an adulterer or an adulteress, and this is one of those contexts. He specifically says adulterer later. So this is someone who is engaging in sexually immoral behavior, not against a spouse, but sexually immoral behavior, period. This is why uh, the New American Standard says fornicators, because that would be discriminated from an adulterer, because that means somebody who is unmarried who is having sexual intercourse with other unmarried people, right? If you are married or unmarried and you have sexual intercourse with a married person, that's adultery, right? Or at least it's adultery coming from the other side. Um, this can also, pornos can also be in the sense of a male prostitute. Uh, and so there are related terms that are there. So this includes cohabitation, friends with benefits, seeing a prostitute, or any kind of sexual play or activity outside the design of marriage. If I marry myself to this kind of behavior, if I justify it, if I live in it, not if I'm tempted by it, not if I've tripped at one point or another in my life, I understand something. This is something that uh, my theology professor taught me early on that I think is critical to understand. Many times when we think of sin, sins, we think of a sin. My theology professor would do this. He would turn around to the blackboard and he would make a check mark. This is not saying if you have ever sinned by committing sexual immorality, you can't go to heaven. That's not what it's saying. It's saying this is your lifestyle. This is your choice. This is what you've entered into and you've chosen to live that. So my theology professor would turn around and he would draw. He said, sin is not this. And he would make the check mark. He said, sin is this, and he would draw a line. You see, it's a pattern of behavior. So when we come to know Christ, we've been in all sorts of patterns of behavior that don't match the kingdom of God. And God is going to work with us and draw us out of those and give us new habits and new patterns of behavior that are in agreement with our new nature, right? So if you've committed a sin of sexual immorality, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that that disqualifies you. But if you justify that and you're marinating in it, right, then any of those sexually immoral practices will keep you out of the kingdom. An idol worshiper, right? Um, I mean, that's very simple. Few people today have statues in their homes that they're bowing down to. Uh, if you're a Hindu, then perhaps you do but probably not. Now, I think there are Christians that may be a little bit excessive with their crucifixes, right? 
or they're paintings of Jesus. I'm not one of those people that won't have a painting of Jesus in here. I don't think you're praying to that painting of Jesus over there. Okay. You know, I've got this uh, Ariane or whatever that girl that this is like a little eight year old girl that drew that. I'm pointing here because it's up there. You guys know where it is. Um, Akiyanye or something like that. The eight year old girl that painted that face of Jesus. It's gorgeous. It's really cool. But, uh, you know, I can put those up in the church because I don't think you're, you're praying to those. You're not bowing down to those. Right. It's just like last Sunday, I, I put the, you know, the picture of Jesus standing at the door and knocking up there for the, you know, little kids. But I specifically told them, this is what people have, you know, you know, drawn Jesus like, but that's not what he really looked like. First of all, can, can we just get honest here? Jewish men did not wear long hair. So Jesus didn't have long hair. We have that concept, but that's permanently in our, um, our culture. So if I'm going to present a picture of Jesus that's going to be immediately recognizable to people, then they're going to look like Elijah. <laughs> He's going to have beautiful long hair and a beard, right? But Jesus would have had a beard. He would not have had long hair because Jewish men would not have had long hair. Okay. All right. Anyway, that's just uh, in passing. Uh, a worshiper of false gods or idols today. I mean, that could be anything. That could be your car, right? That could be your phone. Anything that you elevate above God is idolatry. So... Not when I do that incidentally or accidentally or spend too much time washing my car or something like that, but when I turn that into an idol and I value that more than God. And this could be something good. You could idolize your spouse. You could idolize your Bible, right? Anything that you elevate above God is an idol, all right? Uh, William Barclay says there were, uh, there were idolaters in Corinth. The greatest building in Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, where idolatry and immorality flourished side by side. So these first two sins were operating next to each other. Idolatry is a grim example of what happens when we try to make religion easier. Huh. An idol did not begin by being a god. It began by being a symbol of a god. Uh-oh, that sounds like we could get in trouble with our crucifixes and our pictures. Its function was to make the worship of the God easier by providing some object in which the God's presence was localized. But very soon, people began to worship not the God behind the idol, but the idol itself. Uh, it is one of the chronic dangers of the life that people, uh, of life, excuse me, it is one of the chronic dangers of life that people will come to worship the symbol rather than the reality behind it. So, you know, if you have a, you know, I wear, uh, crosses sometimes. I've got this one that I wear. It's kind of a stylized uh, sort of crucifix. Okay. I kind of like it. It's smaller. Um, but people, you know, you, you start getting too close to that symbol, right? You start feeling a little too good about that. And you're, you've, you've removed it as a pointer to God and turned it into an idol, right? All right. Uh, then the adulterer. That's the, uh, the Greek word moikos, right? It's simply one that is unfaithful to a spouse. Um, and so, I mean, that's the, the seventh commandment and the 10 commandments, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now we get to this difficult uh, little passage here, and it's on its own slide there, Elijah. Um, the effeminate homosexual or the sensualist, right? So um, when we were in the English standard, in the ESV, um, he, it just says men who practice homosexuality. But there are a variety. I'm going back to the passage here. Forgive me. 
there are a variety of different translations of this, and they have changed over time as the culture has changed its understanding and its opinion of homosexuality. So ESV, which is a pretty uh, literal translation, but nonetheless was translated in 2011, translates two words as one thing, translates it differently than the NASB, which was translated in 1995, okay? So the ESV says, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, which would lead somebody to believe, well, then lesbians are, you know, are okay. That's not what this says, okay? So after the adulterer, the NASB translates, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals. The word, it's two different words here, okay? The first word is malakos, and that referred to the passive male partner in homosexual intercourse. The other word, uh, arsenokoites, arsenokoites, that's it, arsenokoites, literally means male bed. And it is like Paul is going back to the verse in Leviticus that says if a male lays with a male as he lays with a female, then it is an abomination. He's literally, some people think Paul actually came up with this second word, but it would be Paul's way of going back to Leviticus and saying God hasn't changed his mind about sexual ethics, okay? If a man lies with a man as he would lie with a woman, in other words, with that kind of sexual intimacy, then it's an abomination to the Lord. So the first word, malakos, that the New American Standard Bible translates the effeminate, right? This doesn't just mean the passive partner, although it can. It also means luxurious or dainty, right? Um, and it was used to refer to the passive partner. Uh, listen to what Barclay says about this word, because um, he calls them sensualists. He said, there were sensualists. The word malakos literally means those who have become soft, those who live for the luxuries of subtle pleasures. It describes what we can only call a kind of wallowing in luxury in which people have lost all resistance to pleasure. When Ulysses and his sailors, now we're talking about uh, Greek um, literature here. When Ulysses and his sailors came to the island of Circe, they came to the land where the lotus flower grew. Anyone who ate of that flower forgot his home and his loved ones and wished to live forever in that land where, quote, it was always afternoon. He no longer had the stern joy that comes from climbing up the climbing wave. That's a sailor, right? The sensualist desires this life in which it is always afternoon. And so I say, it sounds very much like today, right? I think the bigger problem is not homosexuality. The bigger problem is sensuality, right? There are all sorts of complex uh, things going on, I will say, when someone is attracted to the same sex. But same-sex attraction is not what is being spoken of here. It is same-sex action, okay? So um, if a man is attracted to other men, he can choose to do something different and do something about that. If a woman is attracted to other women, 
uh, they can choose to do something about that. They can choose to, or they can choose to give into it and justify it and call it part of the LGBT community and so forth. Um, but what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that we have left these kinds of lifestyles behind, right? So it's just like somebody that's trying to, uh, to overcome anything in their life, trying to overcome anger, uh, trying to, and, and you know, I'm not playing this light. There are people that have a serious temper and it's a problem and it's harmful. I, I have a temper. I, I typically don't show anger toward people. Um, I show anger toward things. You know, I told them myself on Sunday uh, about my chair that I was putting together. I was rather upset with the chair, which is kind of stupid, really, because you can't do anything about that. But it is, it is a character flaw in my flesh. And I don't know why it's there, but I know it's been there since I was a itty bitty boy. My mom tells me, and she has all sorts of stories, you know, all you moms have stories to tell your children. Then when I was a little boy, they used to buy me cowboy boots, you know, and uh, that I would sit on the floor trying to put my cowboy boots on and get angry at the boot and slam it off, onto the floor. I'm still that way. That was, I was a two-year-old. I am sorry. There's something that's in my flesh that only the Holy Spirit can help me overcome. That's the only way I can try to understand where someone is when they're dealing with a, an aberrant, something that God didn't design attraction, right? So I don't have to give in to those fits of temper. I can fight them. And it may be a lifelong, and it is for me, a lifelong fight. But that's what is shaping me to be more like Jesus. But what we want to do, we just want to give in. Say, no, that's just the way I am. Right? The Apostle Paul said, no, that's not the way you are. That's the way you were. Okay? So, a sensualist. I think sensuality is the problem. And I like... Uh, the NIV, the earlier NIV translation, uh, the one from the 80s, uh, was translated in 84. The translation of Ephesians 4.19 says, uh, and having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Now it uses a different word there in Greek, that is translated sensuality, but you will notice that although this word uh, moikos can mean soft or effeminate or sensuous or uh, describe a sensualist, it's not translated in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 as sensuality in any translation. It's obviously referring to uh, a, an effeminate male in this case. Um, and, uh, but sensuality being a part of that is what this other word that comes from Ephesians 4.19, having lost all sensitivity, that's spiritual sensitivity. They've given themselves over to sensuality. It's the word aselgia. And it means just unrestrained pleasure seeking. You just throw yourself into it, right? Whether that's wild partying or whether that's sexual you know, perversion or whatever it is, you just, You've taken off the restraints and you're just going to do whatever you feel like doing. And, you know, there are times when 
people at points in their lives give in to that. Ideally, especially if they've been taught properly, uh, they come back to that teaching and they repent of that sin. So this is why I'm saying you could even have a period of your life where you entered into sensuality, but you've repented of that, right? And you're seeking to overcome that. So that doesn't mean that you're not going to heaven. It doesn't mean that people that are same-sex attracted are condemned to hell. It's what you're doing with the life God has given you. Remember the parable of the minas, the parable of the talents? What are you doing with that? Um, so the other word, arsenoquites, as I said, uh, is the male partner in, a, in homosexual intercourse, right? This is the, the aggressive partner, the, uh, the one that is playing the male, if you will. Um, so ESV just combines these two and says males that practice homosexuality. Here's what Barclay says about this term. In ancient Greece and Rome, few people were exclusively homosexual. Oh, you didn't know that. But it was a period of great sexual experimentation and the bisexual lifestyle was considerably more common than most people today would imagine. Socrates had sexual relations with other males, as did Plato, whose dialogue, the Symposium, often regarded as one of the greatest of all literary works on love, was based on his own sexual encounters with boys. 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors had relationships with other men, usually as well as women, at least on a temporary basis. At the time when Paul was writing, Nero was emperor, and though he too had relationships with women, he also embarked on a blatant search for sexual pleasure. So here's Aselgia operating. And he had several male partners. Listen to what Nero did. This is Nero that burned Christians as torches in his uh, garden, okay? On one occasion, he took a young boy named Sporus and had him castrated and then married him in an elaborate ceremony before taking him home in procession to the imperial palace where he would serve at the emperor's pleasure. Wow. And now the world returns back to that. And God says, no, that's not you. You're not L, you're not G, you're not B, you're not T. And if you're questioning, turn your life over to Jesus. It's not about how you feel, it's about what you do. It's not, it's not about same-sex attraction, it's not about same-sex love. Sex is not love. Repeat it as many times as you need to hear it. Sex is not love, sex is not love, sex is not love. You're not making love. That's not what you're doing. I'm talking to people that know better. I should be talking to the young people. I'm, I'm used to talking to young people when I'm using this. Right? So we're old. I'm all preaching to y'all like you're doing something wrong, whatever. I got a bunch of amazing people in this room. Um, and then he says, the thief, right? Um, we don't realize, just like we don't realize how common uh, just... See, they didn't have this term homosexual. That's why some people think that uh, Paul came up with Arsenoquites from Leviticus. If a man lies with a man, a man as he lies with a woman, it means male bed. It was just common for people to simply experiment. It's, it's back again. See, it was Christianity that introduced the kind of sexual ethics that have been a part of Western culture up until basically the last century. Um, and, you know, uh, went too far in condemning people and so forth. But nonetheless, uh, 
purity and sexual ethics entered into the world because, uh, in the Western world anyway, because of Christians. All right, and then the thief, Kleptes Barclay says, the state of the law of the law shows how serious the problem was. Now this is crazy. Listen to what Roman law did with thieves. There were three kinds of theft punishable by death. One, theft to the value of more than 50 drachmae, which is the equivalent of about two months' pay. Or, number two, theft from the baths, the gymnasia, and the ports, the harbors, to the value of 10 drachmae, or about two weeks' wages. And three, theft of anything by night. So the Christian li Christians lived in the midst of a pilfering population, Barclay says. So the thief is somebody that can't be trusted. As soon as you know you got a thief in your midst, you're hiding all your stuff, yeah. right? And this is not what Christians are. It's not who we are. Now, this last one, I don't even have time to spend like I, I, I might spend. Uh, it is the greedy person, right? Uh, and it is pleonectes. And uh, Barclay says it describes, as the Greeks defined it, the spirit which is always reaching after more and grabbing that which it has no right it is aggressive in getting and getting more. It is not the same as being miserly, that is, you're saving everything and hoarding it, right? Uh, because its aim is to get in order to spend so that life might bring more luxury. So you can see how it's tied together with this sensuality, right? Moikos and so forth. It's, it's I want more pleasure, I want more luxury, I want, do we see this? We see this. Now here's the sad thing. We see preachers doing this. Okay. Um, in a recent book, uh, several years ago, that was um, written by the nephew of um, Benny Hinn. His name is Costi Hinn. Uh, he wrote a, a book called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. And in this book, he quotes a study that was done by Forbes in 2017. Forbes is the financial magazine. Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Um, have you ever heard of Kenneth Copeland? Who's heard of Kenneth Copeland? Okay. Famous preacher, been around forever. Okay. Kind of Pentecostal, right? Word of faith type preacher. Do you know how much he's worth? Three quarters of a billion dollars. $760 million as of 2017. Hmm. T.D. Jakes, $150 million. Benny Hinn, well, he pales by comparison, $42 million. Joel Osteen, $40 million. Creflo Dollar, $27 million. How about Joyce Meyer? 25 million. Question we got to ask ourselves is, what is a preacher doing with 760 million dollars? Where did he get it? Um, the book, I bought this book and I would recommend it. Um, the book that I just uh, referenced called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. Here's the introduction to chapter four, this is when Costi Hinn was still with his uncle, Benny Hinn. And he describes a time when they, they drove up, uh, 
so this is his uncle, but his father, that is Costihin's father, is basically doing the same thing as Benny Hinn, but on a different level, right? This is how the chapter opens. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you! My dad, driving his newly acquired Ferrari F430, had just pulled into Uncle Benny's driveway. Spotting him from the front steps of his California beachfront property, Benny shouted playfully, greeting, I hate you! The visit to Uncle Benny was marked by a little brotherly competition. The prosperity gospel pays amazingly well, and so do shady business deals that go on in the background, and we had the toys to prove it. This particular Ferrari came as a result of a business deal with my father, father's and uncle's cousin, and he goes on to describe that. But I want to go to another place here um, where he talks about their little shopping spree that they went on. Um, here we go. As I started the car and pulled out, this is a, a further chapter from Uncle Benny's driveway, the sound of a familiar voice began to play through the speakers. It was Catherine Kuhlman. We listened to her and reminisce about her powerful ministries in days gone by. This was a famous leading lady of the televangelist circuit, loved to, uh, this famous leading lady of the televangelist circuit loved to spend donations on the finer things in life. She was a staple in our ears and the model for our ministry, both on the stage and in the stores. Within an hour or so, they're in this Ferrari F430, whatever it was, we were pulling up on Beverly Hills, or on Beverly Street, excuse me, just parallel to world-famous Rodeo Drive. After a brief walk, we spent some time in Monsieur, Monsieur Bijon's store, by appointment only, where a single suit can easily cost upward of $10,000. He designs some of the finest clothing in the world and the prices reflect his unique style and rare talent. Presidential photos are scattered throughout the store. This is where the richest of the rich and the leading men of our nation shopped. I'd been here more times than I could count, and I never felt an ounce of guilt. Suddenly, for a split second, my mind flashed back to certain criticisms I'd heard about our ministry. Is this what they're referring to, I wondered? Should a pastor be spending more money on clothing in a single shopping spree than the average annual salary of the people he's preaching to? How many sick and desperate people did it take to pay for that suit? Hmm. So, I believe that this is a clear example of greed. And it can come from any sector, but I'm just picking on the people that are in my world and that I'm responsible for, right? Um, but I think you need to be careful. These folks are gonna tell you to give your money to their ministry because it'll make you richer. No, they're just greedy and it's making them richer, right? Um, so we have the drunkard, we have the slanderer and abuser, we have the, the robber and the extortioner. All of these lifestyle choices do not put anyone in position to inherit the kingdom of God. And we should understand that. So maybe we need to reevaluate some of the ministries we're supporting, some of the men or women we're listening to, amen? Because greed is mentioned in the same breath as these sexual sins that are often downfalls for ministers. And I will tell you, I just got finished li uh, listening to a podcast um, that talks about the downfall of Mark Driscoll and uh, a church in Seattle um, called Mars Hill. 
Preachers fall for three main reasons. Sexual reasons, money reasons, or power reasons. It's a constant temptation for men. And so each of us need to look at our own lives and we need to look at what is the downfall for us and you know what we need to be fighting against. Because you know if you were to talk to any of the members of the churches of Creflo Dollar or uh, you know, other ministries where they just collect money and tell you that if you give to their ministry, you can be driving a Mercedes and living in a mansion. Uh, they don't think there's anything wrong. And initially, Costi Hinn didn't think there was anything wrong with what they were doing. It's just how he'd been raised. It's a lifestyle choice, do you see? But you can't justify it because you're going to be called to account. All of us will. All right? All right. Well, I appreciate you guys. And that will end our, uh, our stream for the day. And I hope you guys will return uh, to YouTube or Facebook on Sunday. We'll be back uh, at 11. Okay?